Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. Hugh Hewitt from Studio West, talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, because it is the last radio hour of the week, and there he is. If you're watching on the Salem News Channel, he's not wearing a tie today, so he's been downgraded. And uh, he used to wear a tie for this thing when he was going to be on. But he, we, we kind of like Professor Calvert and Kyle Mernon the last two weeks, Doctor, and I'm I'm not sure that you know you can relax this much. Uh, if you keep a dog, you don't have to bark yourself. <laughs> Let me begin talking about barking dogs. You have a White Sox fan masquerading as a radio faculty advisor at Hillsdale. His name's Scott Bertram. He runs a great radio station. He uh, he won the Oscar for faculty members at the Intercollegiate Broadcasting Association for WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale. Tell us about Scott and what he does over there. I, he's a White Sox fan, so he's dead to me, but obviously the students love him. Yeah, he likes the Steelers probably too. He's uh, he, he What's he like? He's uh, First of all, when you sit and have a meeting with him, it's like listening to somebody on the radio. Yeah, he has he more sounds like voice. that. Yeah. He's really good. Yeah, and he's uh he's a radio nut. He's uh he has just thrived in this job. He's very good with the students. Uh they they win awards all the time now. And it's, you know, he's a great guide and a great mentor to them. Now, the idea of running a radio station is not new to Hillsdale. There are lots of college radio stations. They are typically alternative music and terrible. I mean, they're like five kilowatts, and they're terrible. Radio Free Hillsdale tries to do the news. You syndicate my program and other programs, but you also try and teach them how to be journalists. And John Miller and Scott and your whole team there are doing a fabulous job. So is that part of the multifaceted plan to take back the country? Yeah, we're in the world conquest business here, and teaching is our weapon, and the students learn, and then they go conquer the world. And, and uh, you know, journalism at Hillsdale is awesome. John Miller is very good at running all that. And I can't remember now who came up with the idea of the radio station. Probably it was John. And then he went on a surge and found Scott. Scott's the only director that we've had of the radio thing, and it's, you know, it produces documentaries. It, it, they edit your show into something meaningful. <laughs> but what they're doing is they're getting a skill set to take and they're you're not, you don't have a journalism major you have a journalism no, practice I, yeah that's right we have a, it, it's a i think it's a minor i don't really know but uh it's a program and it's huge i mean there's a lot of kids in it and they write in the college paper which always uh wins awards and which over the years has become gradually less annoying to me <laughs> And, well, that's uh, unfortunate. They're supposed it, to annoy the powerful. Um, I want yeah, to turn. Yeah. I want to turn to the uh, campaign in front of us, Doctor. On next week, we're going to go to Winston Churchill's great contemporaries and continue our Churchill series. But I'd like to dip into current events with you. The first thing I want to turn to is the stunner out of Chicago on Tuesday night. Lori Lightfoot didn't finish in the top two. She's the first mayor in Chicago not to be reelected for a second term in 40 years. And we have um, 
the school union candidate who is named Brandon Johnson and the reformer who is named Paul Vallis. What do you think of that result? Well, Chicago is a mess, and uh, it's the murder capital of the known universe, and uh, it's people are sick of it, right? And I, I applaud the thing. It's, a, you know, these big city democratic machines are very hard to beat, and they, so when one of them loses, now she will, it will be a democratic mayor, I'm confident, but uh, it's like the fellow in New York who won, and he talked more about law and order. Eric and, Adams, uh, yes. That, that's right. And he's he, he's he's in the news because he's up in Albany asking for money to, for the cops and stuff. And so, you know, we need to defend our citizens. And we're failing to do that all over the country in every big city. And, uh, well, most every. And that's devastating, right? That's the basic blocking and tackling of government is breaking down in America, generally. And now the problem, though, with Mr. Johnson is that he is the candidate of the teachers unions, and they spent a fortune to get a mayoral candidate into the final and to dump Lori Lightfoot because she was she had a minor squabble with him. They still run the city. The Chicago Teachers Union still runs the city like the California Teachers Association runs the state. What will happen to Chicago public schools if the teachers union's guy becomes the mayor of Chi-Town? Well, the teachers union, uh, if you just look at the gross numbers, it doesn't represent the teachers very well. Uh, what, what, here, here's the numbers. I happen to know them because I wrote something about it lately. Since 2000, the number of student, students in the public schools has grown 7.5%. The number of teachers have grown 8.5%. And the number of administrators has grown 92%. Jeez. And that means the number of administrators is now slightly larger than the number of teachers. But, you know, uh, common sense doesn't make it mean anything in the world of uh, statistics. Uh, but think for a minute. What Think about your own school, where you went to school. Who does the work, right? And, and what... Why is there more than one administrator necessary for every teacher? Why? That's crazy. Because I can name the staff. Is. Even if you have the secretaries and Sister Benita, she ran it like a dictator, but it ran well at John F. Kennedy High School because she was the only administrator who mattered. I mean, there were guidance counselors and there were a few people who mattered a lot, but there weren't. they were a handful compared to the teachers. There's an anecdote from Chicago that I first became alerted to this thing going on in the schools uh, because somebody counted up in Chicago how many administrators there were in the Chicago public schools, and at that time it was 25%. It was reported. Now, first of all, it's probably much higher than that now. Uh, but they called the, uh, the diocesan head of the Chicago Catholic schools and asked how many administrators they had and the woman on the phone stood up and counted them. They were in ah. the room with her. <laughs> so. Well, that's because they don't have any money. They've got to they've got yeah, to put that, every dime into running the school, or it's not going to open every day. You know, the country, the United States is awash in money right now, which is why the inflation is so bad, and it, it doesn't appear to be good for us to have that going on. It's just uh, there's no focus 
on what the actual work is, right? And, you know, I mean, we we helped run a bunch of charter schools, 70-some now, I think. And and what the, the teachers are the crucial people. And usually the number of administrators in a charter school, there might be 50 teachers and there be five or six people who are not teachers working in the place. And that's... You know, you uh, a teacher used to be a source of wisdom. They're supposed to know things, and they love children, and so they go in and they acquaint the children with the things they know. And, you know, Aristotle teaches us that everything with the soul moves itself. And so the learning is in the student, and the teacher helps, and you have to be right there to do it. And the now, administrator is dead weight. The administrator right. is dead and, weight. And how can you know how to be a teacher if you don't do it? Because it's a prudential exercise, right? Every class is different, takes a certain attitude toward the students. Uh, The attitude is listen to them and watch them. And they tell you what they need to know. And if you don't do that, they get bored and they yawn in class, which is mortifying to a teacher, I can tell you from experience. Oh, I, I, I taught yesterday. Uh, by the way, administrators, I'm exempting secretaries. My faculty secretary, I'm the Murphy Brown of faculty members on secretary. Uh, she's moving across the campus, going over to the provost office to take a better job. She takes care of 11 law school faculty members. One secretary for 11 yep. law school. That is a good ratio because we don't need that much help. We ought to be able to do it ourselves. But it's all upside down now, Dr. Arndt, in the public schools. And at, at the superintendent's office, it's all upside down. That's right. And, the, you know, the proper, the archetype of a faculty secretary is a ruler, not a servant. <laughs> Doesn't she tell you what to do? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and when to show up and what time the, the exams have to be there. But I've gone through, in 23 years of teaching at Chapman, I've probably gone through... Uh, a dozen, and that's because it's hard to take care of 11 faculty members. People, they don't want to do it for very long. Don't go anywhere, America. We're going to talk about the administrative state, the GOP 2024 race. We're doing some current events today with Dr. Ron because he's been gone for two weeks as we talked with his colleague Ken Calvert and Kyle Mernon, and he's back. And next week we go to this book, Winston Churchill's Great Contemporaries, originally published in 1939, I believe, maybe before that, a collection of essays. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. Hillsdale.edu slash new course.
Welcome back. America, the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale, including all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, which are also at iTunes and Spotify. All you have to do is Google iTunes Dialogues uh, Hillsdale, and you'll get there. Or to Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Uh, Dr. Arn, um, I've had on this week Nikki Haley, Chris Christie. I had on uh, uh, Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running as a billionaire or half billionaire. It's underway. Is it too early, do you think, that it'd be underway? Uh, well, there's no stopping it, right? So it doesn't matter what I think but, or you think. But, uh, yeah, it is underway. Uh, you know, Mike Pence is on this campus next week and uh, this week, and uh, he's given a chapel talk. Uh, we're not hosting a lot of political talks at Hillsdale College about all this. Uh, mostly it's, uh, you know, it's going to be... A fierce race. Everything in politics is fierce. Uh, there's a sense among Republicans that the country may be lost. I harbor that fear, but also refuse to give in to it. And so people are coming out of the woodwork. And there, you know, there's some good candidates, I think. And so uh, you and I are in Switzerland. We are up in the Alps. But I do want to raise with you what I talked about with Governor Christie on Tuesday. The prosecution of Donald Trump is concurrently proceeding. He's being prosecuted in Georgia, in Manhattan, and by the federal government. What do you make of prosecuting presidential candidates on, at best, unusual and novel grounds? Well, he's the most prosecuted and persecuted president I can think of, at least. And it's because he, he won't do. He, he, he's not the right kind for the ruling class of America. That's what I think. And, and uh, he waged incessant war against them. And, you know, he made plenty of mistakes. I don't think he had a good 2020 at all. But gracious sakes, isn't this over much? And, and he, he just, they won't have him, right? He's no good. And do you have to make a deal with them now to get to be president of the United States? Uh, I fear so. I think so. Uh, I, I was talking to a strategist um, who doesn't want to be named, of the Republican primary electorate, which is 30 million people, 25 to 30 percent are only Trump voters. Not always Trump, but only Trump. They won't participate, they tell pollsters, unless Trump is the nominee. And 25 to 30 percent of the Republican primary electorate will never vote for Trump, which puts the Republican Party on the horns of a dilemma. What do you think they do about that, Dr. Art? Well, uh, uh, never give up on free government because the alternative is worse. And... Uh, one prays and thinks that this will sort itself out. Uh, there's going to be an argument over many months. We're going to grow weary of it. We're already weary of it. But the argument is good, and we should have the argument. And then people can make up their minds. And uh, Now, I have a question uh, for you about we, Ramaswamy before we run out of time in this short segment. Um, he's a very accomplished guy. Summa cum laude at, at Harvard, Yale Law School, started and founded and sold six biotech companies, brought four drugs to market. He's worth a half billion dollars. He wants to be president. He's running on the anti-woke agenda. He did not know what the nuclear triad is. And so the light bulb went off. I think we've got a generation of people under the age of 40 who have no idea about mutual assured destruction and what the Soviets were up to and what we had to do. Am I right? Uh, well... I mean, he's very smart, and he'll learn fast. He's a good. I know him pretty well. He's a good guy, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we're you know, if you just look at the state of the world right now, uh, this is like 
the decade before the First and the Second World War. Yes. Uh, the great powers are dividing up into blocks and in a hurry. And and are, are, are we even aware of that? 200,000 people have been killed or wounded in Ukraine in one year in a ground war in Europe that resembles nothing so much as World War One. That's right. And it's, uh, well, in World War Two, some too. The, the, uh, uh, it's, you know, I mean, what is the, what is the end game here? Uh, uh, you know, it, if, if you just think for a minute, uh, the, the Crimea is a important Russian, Russian naval base. It has been since about 1760. Uh, they, they, they control the Black Sea. The Russian Navy does, uh, that's not so bad for the world because they can't really get out because of the Dardanelles and the Straits of Gibraltar and the Red Sea. In other words, they're choke points. Uh, but they control all that, always have. Well, for a long, you know, for centuries. And so is Ukraine going to have that? Is Ukraine going to become the dominant power in the Black Sea? And that's a lot of territory. It is. We'll come back and talk about that. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. back, America. Talking with Dr. Arm before the break. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. And of course, all these dialogues are at Hugh for Hillsdale or at iTunes or Spotify or you go to hillsdale.edu. You can find them there as well. And every three or four weeks, we stop and take a look at the world around us. And I think where you were going is that when the world divides into blocks, you better have a plan. Uh, and if that plan is anything short of all out war, you've got to be talented. You have to be strategic. You have to have prudence on your side. I don't think Team Biden has any of that. Now, I happen to like the idea of arming Ukraine to the teeth because there is an axis of evil that begins in Beijing and runs to Moscow and Tehran, and we have to oppose it. But we're also not going to get into a naval war in the Black Sea. That's crazy. Yeah. And and see, uh, you know, I, I don't... Uh, here's just some obvious things that are... You know, wrong to say, contemporary parlance. Uh, the hostility between China and Russia, and between Iran and Russia, and Iran and China, is very deep seated. Right? They they should be splittable from one another, uh, and we're not splitting them. They're getting closer together. Uh, China, uh, just think about, if you can picture a map of, this, of Russia, it's huge, right? And most of it is out to the east, and that's where a lot of the resources are. And it's much of it is closer to China than it is to Moscow. And China is a resource-poor country with a whacking big population. And, you know, China is apparently at the point of a large demographic decline. Huge. And that, yeah, and that gives them a deadline, right? And they've built up this huge military, and they're still building it, and they want those resources. And so it's just a heresy. It's terrible to say that we should try to split Russia from China. But if you just step back for a second and look at world politics— what uh, uh, the Bismarckian system, 
uh, Bismarck conquered uh, Austria and several German states and united them into one. And that meant that he had a potential grievance with Russia and France. And so what he did was make an alliance with both of them and carried himself softly, very much. And uh, he wanted to take nothing from France after the war of 1885. Right. Yeah. The Franco-Prussian yeah, War is and, when they march into Paris in about a week. And they signed the peace treaty in the Palace of Versailles. And they took Alsace and the Rhine. But Bismarck didn't want to do that. He wanted to leave them with everything they had. And so he kept, he kept that up. Now, what happened after that was uh, the Kaiser died and Bismarck got old. And all of this grand system that he had built was inherited by a bunch of people I refer to as the rich kids. Uh, they didn't build it. They just had it now. And the next thing you know, uh, the Germans are challenging Britain on the seas. And they're driving their potential enemies together. And that's what led, that's what led to their defeat, but also led to the First World War. And that was a terrible thing, right? Now, in the Second World War, uh, Hitler gets control. And, you know, the peace after the First World War was terrible. Uh, everybody, every, every Churchill resisted it himself. He was there. Uh, he wanted it to be less draconian on the Germans. And he, 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 well, they charged him a lot of money. And, you know, it was just Germany attacked a bunch of people and the devastation was global. But it wasn't uh, prudent. But, well, he just thought, you know, if you just look at those trenches in which Churchill himself personally fought and the scale of it and the losses, peace is better, right? That would be better. And so, you, you know, uh, Doctor, I'm, we're talking about 2024. How much of this debate should be this issue, the international stage and our strategy approaching it? And how much of it should be on the administrative state and education, which are the two big domestic issues, if you include border policy as national security issue? Well, the answer is a lot on both. Uh, uh, the, you know, war, if war becomes an emergency and it's bordering on that now, you won't really have the latitude to think about anything else. That's, that's but, it. But we have a form of government. Uh, I'm not going to look it up now, so I'll quote it to you. But uh, in 1936, Churchill published an essay in Britain called uh, What Good is a Constitution? And, and it was about Franklin Roosevelt's first war on poverty. You know, that thing from the 60s, it turned out that Franklin Roosevelt declared such a war. And Churchill never wrote a word of criticism of Franklin Roosevelt by name, but he goes into that and he says, you know, war is a thing that commands all the resources in the state. But if all the resources of the state are at the command of the government, you don't have the liberal, liberal society anymore. And so if you're perpetually at war, I mean, how long have we been at war now? Long time, 2001. I mean, right, and what do we have to show for it, right? Afghanistan is now peaceful and free and democratic, and huh. Iraq is the same, and Iran is going that way, right? Have we won anything? And... 
And and so we have not been attacked on our homeland in in defense of the Bush doctrine. We have not been attacked again on our homeland. Okay, is that what stopped it? Uh, You know, I mean, could happen before the show ends. You know, I have no idea, but it's better than 9-11 was. You know, uh, a better, you know, for a free country and see, I, I don't spend my days thinking about this stuff. I just happen to know a lot about Winston Churchill and war from him, right? And he's a pretty good teacher. And we, we, Winston Churchill was very reluctant about war and afraid of it. He became afraid of it. And we, we talked about it in the River War, right? We read yes. that passage. Uh, he, he just saw the devastation that was possible. And so just compare that fact to... Uh, what a free country is like, right? More than half of the economy of the United States is now in the hands of the government. It has an enormous influence on elections. Uh, it appoints administrators where teachers are needed and, and, and everything like that, right? And so that's what it's like if the government is the whip hand in the society. But the people are supposed to be the whip hand in the society. And that means... Make your own way, open world, try to get ahead. Lots of opportunity for that, you see. And and so, you know, if everything is an environmental harm and everything is there's constantly an emergence about about emergency about everything that happens, is it electric cars that's solution or is it something else, you know? Well there's a constant agitation. And where will there be room for people to lead a private life. You know, the thing about the administrative state, Dr. Arn, I want to I want to talk this segment and and next about the administrative state. Governor DeSantis began talking explicitly about the administrative state last week on his book tour and the threat that it poses. And I think you said like four weeks ago, the term the administrative state is now in circulation. And that's a good thing. People are beginning to come to grips with it. The administrative state in California has an invested interest in having drought conditions obtained because that gives them more power, more money, and more authority. And although we are buried in snow and I am floating away in California, you would not recognize this winter in California. It is, it's like living in Michigan right now. They will not declare an end to the drought. They will not do it because, and they won't even give you any metric by which to measure the end of a drought because the administrative state, Hewitt's Law, never declares over a crisis when that crisis serves its power, authority, and budget. Do you agree or disagree with my cynical view of government? Yeah, well, that's, uh, and, you know, just think, there are millions of people. I mean, I think that there are 24 million civilian employees of the government of the United States, mostly at the state level. But they're all in a system that's up and down, right? And so the thing of the day, you know, I mean, in, in, uh, in, uh, Michigan, when the pandemic was the hot item, the Department of Agriculture got involved in it. And, you know, because uh, this is what we're here for, right? Like, if it's true that the right kind of person, and there are millions of them, gets themselves a bachelor's degree, and a year later, if they work at it, they can be a really good school teacher, and they can figure out how to do it. Right. And it, it actually can't be figured out for them. 
And so if that's true, then half the employees of public education are in the way. Now, it's probably an exaggeration to say that, but it's certainly excessive. And so you move authority and money away. And, you know, I know about education. That's what I do for a living, right? And the learning happens in the soul of the student and in the classroom where the student sits. And so what you want is you want priority given to everything close to that. But what we've done is taken half the resources and moved it far away from that. And that obtains to every bureaucracy. Hold hold that thought, Dr. Arm. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hilltale Dialogue continues. Head over to hilltale.edu. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English, Justin Jackson, picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. Next week, America, Dr. Arn and I will move on to this book, Great Contemporaries by Winston Churchill, and and Lord Rosebery will be our first uh, subject. But before we go there, we've got to finish talking about the administrative state in the schools, Ron DeSantis, D-E-I-E-S-G. I do think this is a pregnant area. I think you're going to see a lot of people use your statistics at the beginning of this hour about 91% increase in administrators and a 7% increase in students and an 8% increase in teachers. I'd put that in my stump speech because every American parent knows what that means, right? I got a text in the middle of the night from our our friend. I can't keep my, you know, your glasses look better than mine. How do do you make that? I tape them on. I tape them on. You're just, you're just pretty, aren't you? (laughs) Um, I'm here to represent knowledge. Uh, (laughs) I need a beard. <laughs> yeah, you got to get a beard. Uh, I got a text from our friend Tom Cotton two weeks ago. It was extremely welcome to me. He'd read this thing I wrote in Imprimus. And he says that uh, Sarah Sanders, who's going to be awesome, and I was at the rodeo with her father, and we both agreed that she was going to be a lot better governor than he was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mike Huckabee is her father. They've got a very aggressive education agenda going, and they're going to try to do something about the the number of administrators, right? And why can't you focus? Because, see, just if you look at this rebellion that started in the schools in Loudoun County and other such places, Loudoun County is a blue county. And they're doing things to people's kids that people that are, I mean, they're indecent, the things they're doing. And if you protest... You're pilloried in public, and your custody on your child is threatened. 
But then Glenn Youngkin wins, which tells us the real state of political play. Look at, you know, Glenn Youngkin and and Ron DeSantis are budding emerging stars, right? Ron DeSantis won in his first election, his his second election, his re-election this last year. He won by a gazillion votes. But the first election, I know the numbers, he won by 45,000 votes. And the exit polls, which are not great, but they're what we got, says that he got 60,000 more votes from black women than any Republican had ever got in Florida. And he did that by campaigning around the schools and the choice schools and saying, they're going to take this school away from you. So, the you know, the key to the situation, if it's not simply deadly, if it's not true that we're just finished, which we may be, uh, God will finish with us at some point, uh, but not on our watch, I like to say. You know, I don't okay, think so. Like In a- fact, uh, the, the good thing that Mr. Ramaswamy said that he got right is that we're just going to have to shut down some of these agencies. It was very, yeah. it was it was like Ronald Reagan talking about the Department of Education, but a broader scope. We're just going to have to shut him down. And he's so right, yeah. Dr. Arn, about that. And I think yeah. younger people get that. You know, in the in the polity established by the American Constitution, there are 17 paragraphs that say what the federal government may do. And they concern the following three things, just three. Uh, national defense, guaranteeing a national system of commerce, and controlling the places on which the federal government directly operates. All of the rest of it is not in there, right? And, you know, education is not in there. And I I like to say they didn't leave it out by accident. The Northwest Ordinance is being written in the same town in the same month as the Constitution is being written. Plus, the founders differed from most of our politicians today. They actually had an education. Yes, they did. So they didn't think they didn't they didn't think it needed to be controlled from afar. And that's, you know, that's, you know, the key. Uh, All just government is is run by all every human association that's happy is run by goals and not rules. And the authority goes from the bottom upwards. And it was very refreshing to me this week to hear the Chief Justice of the United States in Biden v. Nebraska say to the Solicitor General, you're asking for a lot of power that isn't in the statute you are referring to explicitly. You're asking to spend $400 billion and it's not in a statute. I think that student loan giveaway is doomed, Dr. Arnold, if they get overstanding. And that, that will be a turning point for people in understanding what this president is doing with his executive authority. What do you think? Yeah, they they think, and, you know, I mean, it's dangerous, right? There's, uh, uh, I get plenty of criticism, and you get plenty of criticism, and the only power we have is to talk. Is to and talk. also, I, I govern a college with 2,000 people in it. And, and that means that there's thousands of other colleges. Anybody who doesn't like what I do can go to college somewhere else. And, you know, turns out we're pretty popular with applicants. And it's, it's because, so why is it so important that what I say be regulated in the way that it increases? It, it's is, not. Right? It's anti-constitutional. When we come back next week, we're going to talk about Winston Churchill's great contemporaries. And Dr. Arn will explain to you why what he just said matters to that conversation. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.